You know, not all of God's servants have had exemplary, faithful lives. I want to introduce you to a man named Cyprian. Cyprian was a very wealthy, very educated, very influential man. He lived in the city of Carthage during the third century. Now, right there causes some of you. Third century, snooze time. I'm going to check out for a little bit. I'll come back in when it gets interesting. Listen, you've got you to get a hold of Cyprian's life because there's a lot of Cyprians among us. Myself, I tend to be this way. I don't think I'm alone. So let's pay attention to Cyprian because when Cyprian became a Christian, he gave away a significant portion of his wealth. He gave it to the poor. And then he was soon ordained to the clergy. And years later, he was actually elected the bishop of Carthage. This is no lightweight Christian. This is the heavyweight third century Cyprian. Very, very influential. But Roman persecution was ramping up. This is why you need to hear this. This is what's happening in this world right now in our day and age. Persecution is ramping up. I don't think, I don't think that we're not going to see this ramping up in America. In fact, let me put it in the positive. I think and believe we will. Some of us are going to be like Cyprian. You see, Roman persecution ramped up. It spread under Emperor Decius and heading toward Carthage. This persecution was due to Carthage, really, under Cyprian's bishopry, really was an amazing place, an amazing city for the gospel. Christian clergy were being rounded up. They were being compelled to give allegiance to the emperor. Okay, so this is what the persecution looked like. This is what it will look like. You have to give allegiance to a ruler in this age. And then in Cyprian's day, they were required to worship and sacrifice to a Roman god. So if you don't want to die in a public execution, then when you are brought before the proconsul, you've got to swear allegiance to the emperor of Rome. And then you've got to make a sacrifice on the spot to a Roman god or goddess. Well, when the edict was pronounced in Carthage, Cyprian had fled. He fled in fear. And it caused him to lose the influence that he had gained as he preached and as he guided the poor in the city. He fled to escape, to escape persecution. But yet here, this is interesting, he continued to function as the bishop of Carthage, but he did it through an administrator. He fled the city, but he functioned as the bishop through an administrator, but he was dogged the rest of his life by accusations of weakness. He continued, or he eventually, rather, he eventually returned to the city of Carthage. And it wasn't long before persecution arrived again. Now we're in the year 256 A.D. And this persecution, this wave of it, was known as the Valerian persecutions. And this time, now listen, this time Cyprian stayed. And he was soon summoned before the Roman proconsul. 
And he was given an opportunity to swear allegiance to the Roman ruler, and instead he boldly proclaimed his faith. And he was exiled. Listen, they exiled him away. They took away his position of bishop and they exiled him. But almost exactly a year later, the emperor said, no, no more exiles. You're going to publicly execute the traitors. So he was brought back to Carthage and he was taken to a very public spot in the city. And he refused to deny the faith, though he was given the opportunity. And he was sentenced to decapitation by sword and responded upon his sentencing with these words, thanks be to God. They took him to the open place in the city where he himself, listen to this, he himself removed his clothes, which they were going to do anyways. He removed his clothes. He knelt down. He prayed for Carthage. He prayed for his persecutors. And then he prayed for himself. And then he took the blindfold that they would have put on his eyes. And he blindfolded himself. And he bent his neck before the sword. And a moment later opened his eyes in glory. That's a real story. This is a man who betrayed the gospel yet was given a second chance. You see, we serve a God of second chances. And it's what we find our prophet Jonah about to receive. He was the prophet, let me remind you. He's not just a prophet. He was the prophet of the Lord. He was a hero in Israel. And that status, when you are famous, and when you are popular, and when you are loved, that status can bring a person to the place where they believe they can choose the assignments that they want to take from God. Now you might find, you might find that the Lord reveals to you there's a trace of that in your own heart where there's an assignment that he might give to you that you don't want and you opt out see Jonah refused to go to Nineveh he refused to preach against them he handed in his resignation letter to the Lord he boarded a ship and fled to Tarshish or tried to which was a city 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh but God pursues his rebellious prophet. And he sent him to the bottom of the sea and into a fish's belly. And for three days, three nights, Jonah is in that great fish until finally he began to surrender to God. Finally, his will began to break. Finally, he began to become yielded to what God wanted him to do. In fact, he expresses it. In chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you recall the reason? This is why he says what he just said in, in verse 9. Do you recall the reason that he refused the assignment to go to the Ninevites and preach against them? Chapter 4, verse 2 tells you he didn't want them to get saved. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He hated them. He wanted them to be destroyed. They were the, the enemies of Israel. They were the enemies of God, and Jonah had no love for them. He did not want them to receive salvation. Yet, from the belly of that great fish, he comes to the place where he finally... Now listen, this is very, very important, what I'm about to tell you. He finally admits 
that God has the right to save whoever he wants and only he can save them. Now, I know you agree with the second part of that, only he can save them, but I don't know if we all agree with the first part, that God has the right to save whoever he wants. You've got to flip that coin. He's got the right to not save anyone he wants. And it was upon this admission, this is very interesting, that God moves the fish, chapter 2, verse 10, to vomit him onto the dry land. I didn't talk about that two weeks ago, but I want you to think about that for a second. Where have you heard dry land, dry ground before? At least two times. Think of the great flood of Noah's day when the water receded and there was dry ground. Think of the Israelites, two million of them, being chased by the Egyptian army as God divides the Red Sea and the Israelites cross, across, they cross through it on dry land. Do you know what dry land signifies in the Scripture? It signifies that God has brought His salvation and there is a new beginning. Now, if I were you, I would write that in your Bibles because I think this is pretty key. God has brought his salvation, dry land, and there is a new beginning. And for Jonah, as we're about to see it, this dry land, he's vomited onto the dry land, it signals the end of his great trial in the storm, trial in the fish, and the beginning of a second chance. And I'm going to give you three points that I think hopefully can stick in your mind and remain, remain in there and be a little bit of a transformational force. Let me give you the first one. God's grace extended. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's read it together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now that's it. That's all you need to read, and there is so much in here. We're going to go on in a minute, but I want you to focus on this for a second. We're going a little bit deeper in this sermon. We're going to go a little bit down into the pulse of this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and what we're going to look at again is God's grace extended. So let me ask you in order to prepare you a question. Ready? Here it is. I want you to think through this with your mind. Activate your mind and deliberate with this. When is the last time when is the last time that you boasted about God's love and grace? When's the last time that you bragged about God's love and grace? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think for some of us, you may never have done that. For others of us, it might have been some time. There are probably the few mature in here that do this regularly, but I'm going to tell you this is the trajectory of the gospel that we would get to the place where we boast regularly on God's love and His grace. You get to read this in Jeremiah 9. Let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. This is God speaking. So if you're going to boast, boast that you understand and know me. That I am the Lord who practices 
steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Listen, if you're going to know God and he's going to reveal himself to you, then you've got to begin to apprehend, comprehend, understand that God really practices, not a one-time act. He practices as a way of life, steadfast love, righteousness, justice. He delights in practicing them. If you ever want to ask God, God, what do you really like to do? When you have some spare time, some downtime, what do you really enjoy doing? Well, you just read it. He really delights, he really enjoys in giving steadfast love and showing mercy and justice and righteousness on the earth. This is what God really has a good time doing. So if you're going to boast, then boast in the Lord, brag on him. Now watch, ready? This is where you bring Jeremiah to your life. Brag on what God is doing in your life to demonstrate what he delights in. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Christian, we ought to brag, we ought to boast, we ought to be thankful that God is the God of the second chance. He is an unrelentingly gracious God. He loves steadfast love. And do you remember how we've been defining steadfast love? He will never love you more than he does right now. Do you understand that? There is no possibility that God could ever love you more than he does right now because he loves you with all the love that he's got. And steadfast love means he can never love you less than he loves you right now. It's not possible for God's love to grow cold towards you. It cannot wax and wane. It is as much as it will ever be. It will never be less, and it will never end. That is what steadfast love is, and God delights in practicing it in your life. And he's demonstrated this to Israel all throughout their history, and he's going to do it in their future. Can you imagine? Now think about this now personally. Can you imagine where you would be if God did not give you a second, third, fourth, hundredth, thousandth chance? I mean, I want you to think about that. I really I don't want you to just wax eloquent in your mind about it. Really think about it. What if God said, you know what, I've given you one chance. Where would you be? I know where I would be. I'd be in a boatload of problems. I'd have no hope. You know, one person wrote, the second chance is so uniform a feature in Israel's history that there could be no question of the propriety of calling Israel the people of the second chance. That's how you ought to think of Israel. That's how you ought to think of the church. That's how you ought to think really of yourself. That's how I ought to think of myself. We're the people of the second chance. Now think of, the, think of Israel's history. Abraham twice gets in trouble because he fearfully lied that his wife was only his sister. Both times God had to bail him out. Moses, who in a fit of rage smashes the first stone tablets of the law, God had to write them again on the second one. Israel, on the edge of the promised land, the first time, almost poised to go in, but they rebel in unbelief and they wander for 40 years, but God gives them a second chance and he brings them into the promised land. David, who was given that kingdom that Saul really forfeited through disobedience, David given that kingdom, but he 
He uses his power for adultery and murder, yet God redeems him. Rahab, the prostitute, given a new life. Peter, who lied and abandoned Christ in his hour of greatest need, given another chance to serve him. The thief on the cross, the promiscuous woman of the city. I can go on and on, example after example. And we're no different from any of them. We've all received mercy after mercy from God. You ever been in need of a second chance? I want you to think through that a little bit. (coughs) Can you think of an example? This is a melodramatic pause while I am about to stave off a cough while you think of a second chance. Maybe, once again, You've gambled yourself back into debt. Or perhaps your temper caused what seems an insurmountable strain on a relationship. Or you've been beaten up by regret and guilt because you've stumbled in one particular sin for the hundredth, maybe more times. Or you've arrived at the marriage altar having given away your purity in a regretful moment of passion. Have you ever been in need of a second chance? And God freely offers it when his saints humble themselves. And he will not discard you. Now listen, he will never throw you away. He's not going to say, you know what, you've used up my quota of mercy because Pastor Matthew read it to us at the beginning. His mercy is new every morning. His steadfast love cannot fail. God never gives up on his children. And he doesn't do it with Jonah. And he's going to send his word to him again. Now look at it again. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now there's a lot of wonderful truth in this verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now just think about that for a second. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, I'm going to imagine, I might be wrong for some of us, but I'm going to imagine that you would read that in your quiet time and you would just sort of flit over that and that wouldn't really impact you, but you need to stop because there is a real interesting theological truth in this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God didn't wait till Jonah came to him. God came to Jonah. We have a God that takes the first move. Do you know how unusual that is in pagan historical religion? It never happens. It's incredibly contrary to the ancient custom of a master with his servant. The master never, listen, the master never went to the servant. That was a breach of protocol. The servant always had to go to the master. Yet throughout the Bible, throughout history, God is the one who is the one who goes. I mean, look at John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God, in other words, sent Jesus. He's ascending God. He goes. He doesn't wait for us to arrive to him. But it's now, it's in this season of Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ, 
that we think most vividly on this point that Christ came to us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of the Lord, now listen, this is, the key, this is so incredible. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah, now watch, and the Word of the Lord came to earth, Except this time, the word of the Lord was wrapped in flesh, and his name was Jesus. The same word of the Lord that came to Jonah, listen, is the same word that came to earth. One's Old Testament, one's at the dawn of the New Testament. The word in Jonah's day is the incarnated word that we celebrate on December 25th. This is the great lesson that we learn in this verse. God's word is personal. God's word is personal. I want you to think on that a little bit more because this is so major of a point. And I'm afraid that we're going to flip right over it without really letting it impact you. God never, ever, listen to me, will never speak to you in an impersonal manner. Never. There will never be a time that God will, will bring his word to you generically, powerlessly, impersonally. He brings it to you, not waiting for you to get to him. He brings it to you, and it will always be personal. And its, great, its greatest demonstration of that was the word that became flesh, Jesus. But I want to go a little bit deeper with the next point. God's word demonstrated. Now, we just saw that God's grace was extended. It comes to Jonah for the second time. God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to give any of us a second chance. It's his prerogative. It's his steadfast love. It's his mercy. But he comes, the word of the Lord comes the second time. But now you're going to see God's word demonstrated. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. The most attacked Elements of Christianity are Jesus, the Son of God, and the Word of God. There, is, there are no two areas of Christianity more attacked than Jesus and the Bible. And one of the many ways that the Bible is attacked, now watch this, there's a visual part here. One of the many ways that the Bible is attacked is in the effort of reducing its authority. You've got to bring it down. You've got to bring down, you've got to lessen the authority of God. So you head into Barnes and Noble or the Moravian bookstore or any other number of, of bookstores and you're going to see a variety, a vast, vast variety of books on religion, spirituality, philosophy. They're all going to speak about God. And so then, you know, you walk into these bookstores and you see all these different expressions of religion. The Baha'i faith and Zoroastrianism. And then you've got Buddhism and Hinduism, the Muslim faith. And you've got Judaism and Christianity and New Age. You get all of these books. And the conclusion that many people come to is that since these writings reflect 
the insights from a lot of different cultures, it would be arrogant for anyone to claim that their religious views are the correct ones and others are wrong. This is called pluralism. This has been the great attack on the Bible in our generation. There's a lot of roads, there's a lot of paths that get to the top of eternal life. It doesn't really matter which one you're on. It's going to go around the mountain and get to the top. That's pluralism. Except the Bible, and particularly Jesus, is very exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. My words are life. He's very exclusive. But the critics, the ones who are trying to reduce the authority of the Bible, they claim that religion is a private matter and each one of us has to find our own way. And here is the popular analogy a lot of you, I'm sure, have heard about it. This is what they use to prove that there is no one great religion. It's their interpretation. It's about three blind men and an elephant. Three blind men who encounter an elephant for the very first time in their lives, and one at a time they touch the elephant, one touches its leg, another its tail, and the third blind man touches its trunk. And they each exclaimed, now I know, I've learned what an elephant is like, and they sit down to discuss what they now believed an elephant looked like. The one who touches its tail went first and said an elephant was like a straw fan swinging back and forth to give a breeze, except it is wispy in the middle. The one who touched its leg said, no, no, that's not what an elephant is. An elephant is a strong, sturdy tree without branches. But the third who touched its trunk said, no, you're both wrong. I know what it is because I touched it. An elephant is like a snake. It is long and strong and round. And back and forth they argued until the point of the story emerges. How can anyone really know until he has learned all there is? That's the point of that analogy. To reduce the Bible's exclusive claims. Or, from the critics of Christianity, it goes like this. How can you talk of Christianity as the only way to heaven? You're only seeing it from one vantage point. The same as a Muslim or a Hindu or Mormon, they see it from their vantage point. So how can you say you're right and they're wrong? Therefore, all religions are equally valid and no one of them has exclusive authority over others. That's the point of that story. But let me ask you a question. You ready? If anybody ever says this analogy to you, to try to prove and reduce the authority of the Word of God and the exclusive claims of Christ and its Word, this is what you say to them. But what if the elephant talked? What if the elephant spoke to the blind men and explained what he was like to them? Then it's not three men groping around in the darkness of blindness, touching a different part of the elephant, coming to a unique and contrary conclusion. What if the elephant spoke to them all and said, this is what I'm like. This is what I am. What if it wasn't really about the blind men trying to figure out what an elephant was like, but the elephant explaining to the blind men what he was like? 
And this is precisely what the scriptures claim. God himself has spoken and revealed who he is. In fact, Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. When you read the scriptures, friends, you are reading the words of the elephant in the analogy. You're reading the words of God. God's purpose in giving to us the Bible. Listen, it's not to list for us a thousand rules that you cannot hope to keep in your own power. You're not going to keep any of them. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to know God, for Him to reveal who He is to us so that we can have a relationship with Him. To read the Bible, then, is to read God's message that He has given to you. And when you hear the Bible spoken, it is to hear the voice of God. See, when I read a book off the shelf of a bookstore, like you, I retain the right to disagree with the author. You have that right. But when I read the Bible, to disagree with the Scriptures, the Word of God, is to disagree with God Himself. So I may not like what the Bible says, I might not be comfortable with everything in it, but He is God, I am not. I place myself under its authority, unlike the critics who place the Bible or themselves, rather, over the Bible. We don't critique the Scriptures. You certainly critique my sermons, and Pastor Matthews, and Pastor Tim's, and whoever else preaches. You should critique them. You should bring them back to the Word of God and see if what I'm saying is correct. But you don't critique the Scriptures if you're a Christian. You invite the Scriptures to critique you. Examine me and search me. See if there is anything in me. You know how God is going to do that? He's not up there with an all-seeing eye flashing back and forth like Sauron. He is going to examine you with his word. And when you read his word, it's going to flay open your heart. And it's going to reveal what's in it. And sometimes you're not going to like it. But that's the scalpel of the word of God. It's doing surgery. And he's got the anesthesia of grace running through your soul that you can take it. Now watch, Jonah, when the word of God came to him in chapter 1, placed himself over it and rejected it. The word of God comes to him again in chapter 3, and now we get to see a different response. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now watch, friends. Do you understand now the purpose of the storm, the purpose of the great fish, the purpose of the trial and the heat and the pressure and the pain. The purpose was to bend Jonah's will to submit it to the authority of the word of God because you cannot do anything for God if you're not. It was to bring Jonah to the place where he yielded his heart to God's word and became obedient. Notice verse 2. Now, can you look at it with me for a moment? Notice verse 2, what, it, what God did not tell Jonah. Call out against it the message that I tell you. 
you got to look deeper. God didn't yet give Jonah the message that he's going to preach. And God's done this throughout history with his people. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Listen to this. And as he went out, not, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Jonah, I want you to go, and I'm going to give you the message as you go. You're not going to hear my message that you're going to preach until you get faith moving your feet see listen if you're not going to be obedient you're not going to get the depths of the word of god you ever wonder why the the bible you open it up and you seem to get nothing from it well one of the indications is you've got a disobedient life god will not crack the depths of the scriptures if you're walking in a way where you put your authority over god's he will not yield the treasures easily you want to know God through his word, you want to know him deeply, and you're not getting anything from the word of God, then the very first place to start is God critique me, search me, see if there's any offensive way in me because I'm likely in rebellion to you. Faith and obedience, Spurgeon said, are bound up in the same bundle. You cannot separate them. They cannot be extricated from one another. They're bound up in the same bundle. He who obeys God trusts God, and he who trusts God obeys God. Kingdom work is done by faith. Listen, if you can do God's assignments in your own power, then listen, that assignment wasn't from God. You can never do God's work in your power. It cannot be done. It's not by might, not by power, but by, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's spirit is going to do the work. Which is why Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. He's going to give you everything you need to do all that he's going to ask you to do. Faith must be bound with obedience. And this is the great lesson that Jonah began to learn. While we've seen God's grace extended, we're kind of seeing God's word demonstrated. Lord willing, next week, you're going to see the most incredible revival that's ever been in human history. That's where you're going to really see that God's word is demonstrated. But now, third and final, and I'm almost done, you're going to see this one. God's servant recommissioned. So Jonah arose, verse 3, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah's back on mission. This is the whole purpose. This is what God was doing. The storm, the distress, and the fish, they began a transformation in Jonah's heart. And this is where we return again to what we need to understand about the roots of sin. Now one of the things that I'm trying to really help us learn in this series, and I'm learning it more and more as well, is really what is the what is the most vitriolic what are the most toxic parts of sin because our eyes look at the symptomology our eyes look at the fruit our eyes look at the evidence but we don't get down to the roots we don't get down to the core we don't get down to that which is producing sinful behavior we need to get there 
The worst part of sin is not doing what we shouldn't do or not doing what we should do. Listen, there's a much deeper problem with sin. And it's in every single one of us. There is a dissatisfaction with God that results in a rebellion to him. Now listen, I've added that in to try to give you a little bit more of a nuance. I used to tell you it's a rebellious heart against God. That's the root of sin. But listen, there's one more layer deeper. There is a dissatisfaction with God that produces a rebellion to move to a God substitute and do it your way, not God's way. That's what produces sin. All sin, all sin is a God rebellion rooted in dissatisfaction that looks to satisfy yourself with a God substitute. Now listen, you ought to be doing what I would be doing if I was in your seat, and that is going through some of the examples in your own life. Is that really true? The pulse of that sin, why I did what I did, or why I didn't do what I should have done, is that really because I'm dissatisfied with God? I don't trust God to bring me what I, what I need, and so I rebel against Him, and I find some other God, some other idol, some other means to give me what I don't think God's going to give. Is that really true? true well listen examine you're gonna find that's the root and the gospel aims its sights at the root of rebellion redeeming us rescuing us releasing us from the slavery to sin giving us life giving us freedom and this is what god is up to this is the rescue plan of redemption and our mission friends our mission is to share to everybody around us that god can do the same for them after all, God is the one has, who said, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Turn from his rebellion and live. Two weeks ago, I gave you a chart. I'm going to return to it because I want you to get this emblazoned in your, in your mind. The story of the Bible is seen in four parts. Now watch, look at me for just a moment. I know you can look back to that in just a second. Look at me for a moment. We're really good at the first three. We're not so good at the fourth. Most Christian teaching ends at the cross. But you've got to go through the cross. Because the four parts of the gospel story, the whole plan of God's redemption rests on these four. He created all there is, but mankind sinned and rebelled, became dissatisfied. Don't you know, serpent said to Eve, that God's holding out on you? He doesn't want you to be like him. That fruit was desirable to make her wise. God, I'm not satisfied in what you've given to me, so I'm going to rebel and I'm going to take it, my God substitute that fruit, and I'm going to eat it, become like you, and give it to my husband who was standing right there and did nothing because he wanted it too so god created all there was but we've all fallen we've all sinned we've all fallen short of the glory of god so god had to do something about it because we can't save ourselves it's like taking your smudgy dirty muddy hands and trying to clean the mud off of a window all you do is smear that's what our self-righteousness looks like it smears the window of god's holiness and impeccable righteousness so we can't do it we can't clean the window god can do it and he sent his son because the word of god always comes to us 
And he did what we could not do, and he died on that cross. That's where we end it. But you've got to go one more step. And it's through the cross that God is redeeming lost sinners, but it's through the cross that He is restoring His original intent. It's through the cross as we preach it, and as we believe it, and as we learn it, and as we live it, the gospel, that we, He is bringing enemies to reconciliation. He'll one day bring the lion to lay down with the lamb. There will be restoration, and there won't be any more mudslides and earthquakes and tsunamis that kill people. Because all creation groans for the day of redemption, but all creation will one day be restored. See, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And this is the great message of Jonah. So that God even cares that there are cattle in Nineveh. I mean, when's the last time you cared about a cow being killed? God cares about the cattle. There's a lot of children, there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of cattle. So so Jonah, get over there and preach the gospel. He's saying the same thing to us. Jonah represents Israel. And wherever the Jewish people were, even in bondage, listen, their mission remained the same. Here's God speaking to the people in exile in Babylon. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. Listen, this is why we care about Easton. This is why we care about the east end of the Lehigh Valley. In its welfare, we will find our welfare. So Christian, we've got the same mission. Jonah represents us. And we've got to proclaim the creation and the fall and the cross and the redemption and the restoration so that we can bring peace back into this area and light into the darkness. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a preview or a glimpse of the future. It's not because I'm so smart. It's just because the Bible's pretty clear. I am very sure that America will never, ever become a Christian nation. I don't think it ever was. I certainly don't think it ever will be. I don't think that's the aim of the gospel. I don't think we ought to really expect that Easton and the East End of the Lehigh Valley is going to become Christianized. That's not what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen, and you're seeing it in our lifetime. The world will become darker, and the Christian church will become brighter. And there will be a division between the world and the church unlike anything I believe that's ever been seen on this planet. And there will be the gospel-saturated church made up of the gospel-loving Christian. And then there will be the world who hates Christ and hates Christian. And there's not going to be, in the end times, anybody in the middle. There's not going to be the nominal Christian, the lukewarm Christian. You're either going to be bright in Christ or dark in the world. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's about restoring the kingdom of God, the place where he dwells on this earth. That's our mission. 
to love the world and see God rescue some of the Ninevites of Easton and Bethlehem and Regalsville and Hellertown and Peaberg and bring them into the kingdom of God so that they could be restored to glory and peace with Him and be part of His mission to see people get saved. But I'm going to end with this. We've got the same mission as Jonah did. But I would really invite you to honestly consider, are you living on mission? And if not, why? In other words, I'm going to get really specific. Are you loving people in the world, building a relationship with them so that you may introduce them to the God who sent the word called Jesus to die for them? If you're not doing that, my question is why? And I'm going to tell you the one that's given most popularly to me, which is fear, and I'm going to tell you that's not true. Because perfect love casts out fear. That's not true. I'm going to tell you why we're not living on mission, and it's the same exact reason Jonah wasn't. It's because of apathy. We don't care. We honestly, truly don't care. This is the entire book of Jonah's point. Jonah, you don't care. And you represent Israel. And Israel, you don't care about the Gentile nations that are dying and going to hell. But I chose you to be a light to the Gentiles. I chose you so that I could bless you and through you bless the people of this earth. But you've said, you know what? I don't care about them. And the book will end with Jonah not caring. And that is a lot of the church. And if you can see that in your heart, then that's, that should be, I think, one of the most convicting things for us to ever feel from God. And if we feel that and we see that, then we've got to confess that, repent from that, and begin obeying God, getting on mission, because God, remember, is the God of the second chance. And he's ready to use you. And what he is about to do for the city of Nineveh will be unlike any revival that's ever occurred in human history. And I think God would like to see some of that happening here. Amen?